0: Beginning in verse 12, 1 John two twelve to 27. "'I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have known Him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know Him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever." Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out, in order that it might be shown that they are not all of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning." If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise which He Himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. And as for you, the anointing which you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as His anointing teaches you all about about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. And I'll pray. God, we again just come before you and thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us and all that you are to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, we just want your heart to be pleased in what you see in us today, that we would come to you in humility and dependence. God, just wanting you to speak to us and to work in us for your good pleasure. You know us, God, and you know what we need to be encouraged and strengthened, to be exhorted, to be corrected. Only you are the one who are adequate, God, for all that we need. And so we look to you and thank you, God, for the ministry of your spirit through your word and pray that you would have your good will done in each of us. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I have one um, announcement that I've forgotten for the last couple weeks to make, and that is a reminder at His Hill for the last two years, and we're planning on doing this annually, we're um, having a trip to Israel um, with our second-year students, and that will be March um, 10th to the 21st, and that is open to anyone else who would like to come, and so we've had um, quite a few people from the church here in the last two years that have participated in that, We only have five second-year students this year, and so we have 12 spots available for that trip. It's a wonderful trip. You can talk to any number of people that have been, and uh, we can give you more information about it. But I'll need to know probably in the next two or three weeks of whether you're interested in going, and uh, we'll probably need to get a deposit from you um, about that time so we can start moving forward with that. So that'll be March 10th to the 21st. So we're here in um, John, and, and we saw last week that John wanted to just um, help the people understand what God is, is after in our lives. And he mentioned three things in the first part of chapter 2, and first is that the Lord would have us to, to um, demonstrate our love for Him through obedience, that the Lord would have us to abide in Christ, and the Lord would have us to love one another. So love expressed in obedience, abiding in Christ, which is dependence, and then love for one another. And these are tests for fellowship with God. Anybody can say they're walking in fellowship with God, um, but words are cheap. These are not tests for whether a person is saved or not. They're tests of whether a person is walking in fellowship with Him. And when we're walking in fellowship with God, we will obey God. We will abide. We will depend upon Him and we will love one another. Having said that, and, and John kind of wants to, it seems now, to <coughs> blend over into talking. Not only are these tests for fellowship with the Lord, for the individual believer, but they also, in a sense, are tests of examining those who come and presume to teach. Are they true teachers? Or are they false teachers? And he's going to add... One more particularly important thing, and that is a doctrinal test in the section that I just read. So, there's a moral test of whether or not you're walking with God and whether a person is is truly a a true teacher um, and not a false teacher. And the moral test is that of obedience. If we love Him, we will obey Him. And there is a relational test, and that is that we love one another. But there's also a doctrinal test, and it's what we believe concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is very important because when I'm walking in fellowship with God, I will obey Him, I will love others, and I will also believe what is true concerning Jesus. And this is important for understanding how we evaluate those who teach, and even how we would evaluate a church that we may be looking at and wondering whether we should join that church or not. We're living at crazy times. And for many churches, the most important, in fact, the singular, single test of whether a church is on the mark or not is whether or not they love one another. And we've made that the only test. The only test of whether God is really at work in a church, for many churches, is the test of love. And that is not what John is saying. That is a test. It is not the only test. There is also the moral test of obedience and there is the doctrinal test of what do we believe concerning Jesus. So having exhorted them toward obedience and dependence and love, now John gives an encouragement to three classifications of men in the church. Verse 12, I am writing to you little children, I am writing to you fathers, and I am writing to you young men. Now, most people would take this as three separate categories within the church, and that may be the right way to take it. But some writers take this as these three categories are actually characteristics of the individual believer. Every individual believer is a child before God, he is a father in the sense that he knows God, and he is a young man who has overcome the evil one. So all three of these things could be said to be true of every believer. Whether we take it as three categories of Christians, um, different levels of spiritual maturity, or one person, and all of this is true of him, doesn't matter a whole lot because it's all true. And that we are all children of God. And as children of God, speaking, not every person's ever been born, obviously, but if you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. Your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. And you know the Father. We saw last week there's different degrees of knowing God. And there is the degree of not even being a believer, Romans 1, and they know God, even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. There is the knowledge of a, of a, of a, of a baby Christian, and there is the knowledge of God of someone who's more mature in the faith. But all put people who have placed their faith in Jesus are children of God, and their sins are forgiven and they know the Father. For the fathers, he says, your fathers, because you know Him who has been from the beginning. That's all he says, and he says it twice. You know Him who has been from the beginning, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Young men, and I like this passage. Twice he speaks to the young men. He says, young men, I'm writing to you because you have overcome the evil one. And then he says, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you. And then he says a second time, and you have overcome the evil one. We were looking at this passage with the staff in His Hill a couple weeks ago, and I told them that a few years ago, a number of years ago now, we had a missions trip this time of year. Every year we do a missions trip, and a few years ago we went to Louisiana, Lousiana, and, we and I was just watching as a, as a group of our um, young men, students, walking down the, the sidewalk heading um, to the housing projects where we were ministering part of the time that we were there. And I just looked at those guys, and I don't know why, but this passage of Scripture came to mind. Young men, I am writing to you because you have overcome the evil one. And as they're walking toward that housing project, I just thought, because I used to minister in a housing project the whole time I was in seminary. So four and a half years, I was down in that housing project all the time. And I know that the devil seems seems to have a lot more victory in a housing project oftentimes than he does out in the suburbs. And that's just for sakes. We don't see everything. But just from the face of it, there just seems to be a lot of darkness oftentimes in those housing projects. And as those young men walk toward that housing project, I just thought, they have no idea who they are, but the devil knows. And I see victors walking into the darkness. And that's the way it is for when you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. The scripture says, our faith has overcome the evil one. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And so you may not feel strong, and you may not even be very young. But because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and because Jesus has conquered the devil. The devil is conquered. You have overcome in Christ The word of God abides in you, and you may not feel strong, but in Christ you are. So having given that encouragement, now he says, now I've got another admonition, exhortation. I just told you, express your love for God through obedience, and love one another, and now there's something you're not supposed to love, the world, verse 15, do not love the world. Nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If you just hold your finger here and look over at James, there's a parallel passage here. I like the way James says really the same thing, goes into a little more detail. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1 through 10. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now this is where James really drills down. Verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world, is hostility toward God. John uses this same type of it's this or that, this antithetical type of teaching. It's, it's, it's either you're this way or it's this way. It's either you love God or you love the world. And if you love the world, you have made yourself an adulteress. You've made yourself an enemy of God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, a believer. He's talking to Christians here. He's not saying you've lost your salvation, but he says that when we fall in love with the world, we bring on God's opposition. It's like how to make yourself a target, you know, and lesson number one, exalt yourself, and God will humble you. How do you make yourself the enemy of God? Love the world. You are a believer. God loves you. But you are setting yourself up to be opposed by God because of your love for the world. Do you not know that the scripture speaks to no, that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which He has made to dwell in us. And so when we when we love the world and we are playing the adulteress, God says, "I want you back. I'm not happy with this." But he gives a greater grace, therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, of what? This love for the world. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. All that seems to be about Love for the world, which is what John is introducing here. The world is enticing. We have so many examples in scripture of men and women who loved the world. Demas in the New Testament, Paul just says, Demas has deserted us, for he has loved the world. And Demas is gone. Sad commentary. We have Job, I'm sorry. Not Job, didn't mean to say Job. We've been studying Job and come to him in a minute in the Sunday school class. But Lot and his wife. Lot loved the world. And he moved right into the city of Sodom. And then as the angels grabbed he and his wife and his daughters by their hands and drug them out of Sodom, the wife turned back and looked because she loved the world, turned into a pillar of salt. He was a righteous man. Job, but he loved the world. We all are tempted to fall in love with this world. What John's going to tell us is it has nothing to offer us. So as he develops this, he says there are three particular ways that the love of the world attaches itself to us. The first is the lust of the the flesh. The second is the lust of the eyes. And third, the boastful pride of life. Many people for m- many years have said the best way to understand those three things is look at the temptations of Christ. And with the first temptation of Christ, he hasn't eaten in 40 days. He's extremely hungry. And the devil comes to him and says, all you got to do is turn rocks into bread. You're the son of God. You can do that. And that And commentators say that was equivalent to the lust of the flesh. When we are wanting and craving what we don't have as it pertains to the physical body. So it can be food. It can be clothing. It can be shelter. And I think it can even be... And all those are legitimate things. It's legitimate to eat. It's legitimate to clothe ourselves. It's legitimate to need shelter. Legitimate needs that we crave and want them in a way or in a time, in a manner other than what God is supplying. So this is not the problem in what they want we want. Jesus wanted to eat. Eating isn't sin. But to provide for a legitimate need outside of God's will, that is the sin. And so he didn't. I think we can lust for respect. We can lust for love. We can lust for marriage. And it is the lust of the flesh. Nothing wrong with wanting to be married. Nothing wrong with wanting to be loved and respected. But when it becomes the ambition of the life and it supersedes everything else and we won't be happy until we get what we want, it is lust. And it is evil. It is worldliness. Lust of the eyes. Both of these things have to do with what we don't have and we want. It can be what somebody else possesses, which we wish we possessed. Wish we could drive that kind of car. Wish we could live in that kind of house. Wish we could take those kinds of vacations. Lust of the eyes. It is worldliness. And God is opposed to it. The boastful pride of life pertains to what we do have. Nebuchadnezzar was a great example of that in the Old Testament. He walks around on the walls of the palace that he had made, and he looks out over the whole city of Babylon, and he goes, look what I have made. Boastful pride of life. And God struck him, and the man was reduced to eating grass like a cow for seven years until he raised his eyes to heaven and gave praise to God. Oh, God. And then he says, this is the ultimate reason why it's wrong. Not because of what it does to us, but it is stupid to love the world when you consider, verse 17, the world is passing away. There is nothing in this world that we can attach our affections to which is going to satisfy us because it's all temporary. And we have been made for the eternal. So whenever a person who has eternity in his heart, as every person does, tries to satisfy himself with something that is temporal, he will never be satisfied. The only thing that is going to satisfy the longings of our heart is what is eternal. And nothing in this world is eternal. The world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God abides forever we become as we love God we become more and more (coughs) characterized by what we love you love the world you become characterized by the world love God you become characterized by your love for God God is eternal and we will become more and more stable and steadfast as we love God Let's be honest. How many people feel stable and steadfast, especially when the crises of life come? And you can't just build steadfastness and stability into your life. Jesus is the rock. And as we love the one who is the rock, we become like rocks. Because what is true of him begins to characterize us. The one who does the will of God abides forever. Now, I missed, not intentionally, but I'm going to come back to it, this last part of verse 16 that's worth noting. And that is, he says, it is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world, its system, its lust, its boastful pride, the world system is not from God. Now, why is that important? Nobody would dispute that. But as crazy as it seems, and to me it just seems insanity, there are many people today who are claiming that everything in this world is made by God and caused by God. That is a lie. A flat-out lie. God is sovereign over everything. And there is nothing that happens in this world that God is not in control of. But there is a difference between what God permits and what God causes. Read the book of Job. God did not cause Job to suffer. God permitted Job to suffer. The cause was Satan, not God. So God is not the cause of evil. God is not the cause of this world system. It is not from the Father. I don't know how it could be any clearer. Well, if it's not from the Father, then where did it come from? Well, it's not hard to answer. There is a devil, and he is the God of this world. And this world system is something that he is orchestrating, not God. God is in control of it. God has permitted it for a time, but God is not the originator, the cause of it. Why is this important? Because we all go through some pretty dark times. And it is not the comfort that God wants us to receive to say God caused this to happen. I heard of, an, of a Christian author and speaker who one time said, I was not able to come to peace concerning my child's death until i was able to say god killed my son that is not the kind of peace and comfort god wants you to have i had a student one year that adamantly almost shouting at me insisted repeatedly you have got to admit he said to me that god murdered his son Wow. It is true from Scripture, Jesus was murdered. It is not true from Scripture, God did it. God allowed it, but he didn't do it. Murder is sin, no matter who does it. And if God murdered his son, then God is a sinner. Sin and death did not come into this world because of God. Romans 5 says, sin and death came into this world because of a man. God didn't create fallen angels. God didn't create the devil. God created good angels. And the archangel Lucifer chose to rebel, and he became Satan. He was not created Satan. The demons were created good angels. They chose to rebel, and they became demons. Not everything that happens in this world is because God did it. The devil comes into this world to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus has come that we might have life and have it abundantly. These are plain, clear truths. Not everything in this world is from God. We thank God that he can take all things and work it together for good. But we don't need to blame God for everything that happens in this world. Children, it is the last hour. And with the last hour comes the Antichrist. Antichrist is a label, a title that is unique to John. Paul never uses the word Antichrist. It's John's word. And it's for this person (coughs) that will come, that will arise during the tribulation, (coughs) and he will attempt to rule the earth. He will be a counterfeit Christ, He will be the polar opposite of everything that Christ is. Daniel spoke of him. John speaks of him. Paul calls him the lawless one. So there's many different titles for him in Scripture. John's title is the Antichrist. But John says before the Antichrist, the Antichrist comes, we can expect that we're going to see other Antichrists arise. Well, what makes a person an Antichrist as John is, is using it? Verse 19. They went out from us. The us here, I think, is the apostles. It's not the church that John is writing to. Because they've gone to this church. (laughs) This, This is a problem. These people that John's talking about, they went out from us, are people who are now, it seems, in this church. And so he's alerting them to these false teachers. He says, they went out from us, the apostles. But they were not really of us. For if they had been of us... They would have have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown (coughs) that they are not of us. So what he's saying here is not every time somebody leaves, it proves that that they were never saved. What he's saying is they left us because they didn't agree with the teaching. They left because of a doctrinal problem, and specifically a doctrinal problem concerning the person of Jesus Christ. So he says, that if they couldn't fit in with us because of what we taught, they shouldn't be fitting in with you either. So he says, watch these people. They're not of us, and they shouldn't be of you. And the problem is what they believe concerning Christ, and he's going to get to what they're believing. Verse 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. So, I, he shouldn't have to be telling them these things because they, they, they're of the anointing that they've received. Now, this anointing, he comes, he's going to mention it again in verse 27. Just skip down to that. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, just as it has taught you, you abide in him. So two times he uses this word anointing. It is the only place in the Bible that appears. This is very significant. Whatever this anointing is, everybody, every Christian has it. No exceptions. You don't have to pray for it. It is not something that one Christian has and and another doesn't. Every Christian has this anointing. And this anointing is teaching every Christian. Or to use the words of Jesus in John, leading you into the truth. I will send you another helper and he will teach you all things. He will bear witness of me. He will lead you into the truth. This is what John's talking about, this anointing would seem to be the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, the person of the Holy Spirit. And he is using the Word of God, the Spirit using the Word to teach us. So John's going, I really shouldn't have to be telling you this because these guys, number one, they left us, they left apostolic teaching, the the basic foundational teaching of the New Testament. They've departed from that when they departed from us. And because you have the Holy Spirit, you know these guys aren't right. Verse 21, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie is of the truth. And if there is a hint of a lie in what's being taught to you, it is not truth. No lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one? And this is what the Antichrist is. (coughs) Who is the liar but the one? who denies that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Holy One, the Anointed One, the One who is God in the flesh. This is the Antichrist, the One who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, and the One who confesses the Son has the Father also. So what's he getting at? These teachers that have left us have left us because we've been teaching that Jesus Christ is the all in all. He is sufficient. When you place your faith in Christ, you do not need to get circumcised. When you place your faith in Christ, you do not need to keep the law. When you place your faith in Christ, there is nothing more for you to do than simply receive Christ and the gift of eternal life that he's offering to you. Done. And these guys are saying, that's all great, but. And John's saying, just as Paul did with Colossians, there is no but. It is Christ alone, nothing more. And we know they're a false teacher because they're diminishing who Jesus is. They're denying, when they say they deny that Jesus is the Christ, they are denying that He is fully God. They are denying His deity, His power, His sufficiency. This is a false teacher. And he says, You guys know this. <clears throat> we need to be, I think, honest about why people leave churches. Sometimes it's just petty stuff. Sometimes it's relational, it has nothing to do with doctrine. It's just people have gotten crossways with each other and they don't want to be around each other anymore. But sometimes it's doctrinal. And then we need to ask, well, what is the doctrinal problem? What is it really that's getting me upset? The Free Church, which this is part of, has two or three times now in the last 20 years been tweaking its doctrinal statement. I'll say two times. I can think of two off the top of my head. One of them has just happened again, and so they just had their big national convention, and they voted to change the doctrinal statement again. There's little tweaks And um, But what they're doing is they're trying to take away um, how it's being construed now as being a narrow doctrinal statement. The first thing that they tweaked was that you have to place, a person who places his faith in Christ is then saved. So they tweaked that a little bit. Well, what could possibly be wrong with that? Well, they tweaked it a little bit. Because if you're of the Reformed persuasion, you believe that a person cannot exercise faith until he's first been regenerated. And there's nothing in the free doctrinal statement that said you had to be regenerated before you can place your faith. So they just tweaked it a little bit to make it more accommodating for those who are Reformed. And so then the next thing that they've just tweaked is that the free doctrinal statement has for many, many years said, we believe in the premillennial return of Jesus Christ. Well, if you're Reformed, it's very likely you're not premillennial, that you don't believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ, and you don't believe that the rapture of the church will take place before the tribulation. But that's what the Free Church has historically believed. And so now the Free has tweaked it, because all, there's many pastors have come out of our seminary, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, who are coming out Reformed because of one particular guy who's been teaching there for the last 30 years who's very Reformed. And so the tweak is, no longer do we believe in the premillennial return of Christ, but we believe in the glorious return of Christ. And so everybody can live with glorious. So if you're premillennial or not, you can, yeah, it's going to be a glorious return, but it doesn't speak to when the return will be any longer. Now, is that reason to leave the church? For some people, it might be. For me, it's not, because it doesn't get to the person of Christ himself, per se. What John's talking about is people who are denying the deity of Jesus Christ, and they've left. Good. Good. You know, I'm probably, if I had been writing for John, I would have said, and I'm glad we didn't have to kick them out. They just left on their own. Good. But why do people leave? Is it doctrinal? Why, if I'm tempted to leave a church, speaking for you, why would you leave? We need to ask ourselves, if it is doctrinal, what is the problem? Am I hearing something that I simply don't want to hear because it makes me uncomfortable? See, it's hard for our students at His Hill sometimes because they come in from six, seven different nations around the world. And sometimes, many times, every year, different times, they're going to hear things that they've never heard before not necessarily wrong. They just haven't heard it before. And it's going to make them uncomfortable. And then you can see all kinds of reactions from that. I went up to one of our sister schools one time and (coughs) shouldn't have said it because it had nothing to do really with the Bible. (coughs) But I thought it was a good illustration application. And I made reference to our President Obama. And I called him a Marxist. Um, He is a Marxist. And, um, but, nonetheless, I shouldn't have said it. It didn't have anything really a whole lot to do with what I was teaching, and so it created a little bit of a reaction in Canada, because everybody was in love with Obama in Canada. And so one girl, actually from Seattle, she called home, crying, telling her mother about this crazy Texan that was telling the students that, oh, that our president was a Marxist, and so that wasn't helpful. I didn't need to do that, okay? But... When it comes to doctrinal things that get us fired up, why are we fired up? We need to think about that. Is it really a core truth? Or is it something that's just important to me? But I haven't really examined Scripture, haven't really looked at Scripture to see what it says. When you're 18, 19 years old, there's a lot of things, honestly, that you haven't looked at Scripture to see what it says. And so when the first response is, I don't like that, it's something, man, I'm, you know, I, I just, that doesn't sound nice. Well, not all truth sounds nice, especially, like I said last week, if you're on the wrong side of it. But what does the Scripture say? Why am I fired up? Why am I uncomfortable with this? take it back to God's word, and take it back to God's spirit. So it's both. We have the Holy Spirit who teaches us. We have God's word, which is what he's using to teach us. And so we go, God, I want to know. I want to put aside my prejudices. I want to put aside the cultural influences that I've grown up with. I want to hear from you through your word. And it's amazing what God does to teach us and even to make us accepting of the truth of his word when we humble ourselves and say, God, the truth. I want the truth. Because see, one of these tests that I'm walking in fellowship with God is that I embrace the truth concerning Jesus Christ. I embrace the truth of what the Spirit is telling me. How can I walk with God unless I confess the truth of my sin and come to Him and ask for cleansing. We have to come to the truth. And the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, leads us to the truth. What if I'm not a Bible scholar? You don't have to be a Bible scholar. Read your Bible and come to the one who authored it and he will teach you. That is what John is saying. Let me just wrap it up. I did hear very faintly today that whistle out there, and that means, Charlie, sit down. (laughs) So I would just point out these things. Lots of pages of notes here. You see me skipping through them. Everybody's saying hallelujah. Okay. These three, these things, I think in summary, John is saying so far in this chapter. Number one, going back to the first verse of chapter two, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ. You don't have to pray to have an advocate. We have an advocate. The devil is accusing, the devil is attacking, and we have an advocate. So what do you do? You say, thank you, God, for the advocate that I have, Jesus Christ. Not only do you have an advocate, you have an anointing, the Holy Spirit, who teaches you. Listen to Him. And don't just, you know, it's not some, you know, mystical thing. Listen to Him on the basis of God's Word. He will never say something to you that is contradictory, contrary to God's Word. He will never do that. Listen to the Spirit as He speaks to you through God's Word. We have an advocate. He defends us against Satan's accusations. We have an anointing, and the Spirit teaches us and guards us against Satan's deceptions. Satan accuses, for this we have Jesus. Satan deceives us, attempts to, for this we have the Holy Spirit and his teaching ministry. We also have overcome the evil one. Not because of anything we did, but because Jesus has overcome him and we've placed our faith in Christ. Therefore, we have overcome him. The evil one is overcome. The world has no place in our affections. And you can't love God and love the world at the same time. It's one or the other. The world offers us nothing in comparison to Christ's promise. And what has Christ promised us? Eternal life. There is nothing in this world that is eternal. It should have no impact on us, no control, no enticement on us, because anything the world entices us with is temporary. God, in Christ, is offering us, has given us eternal life. Look at Jacob and Esau. Jacob recognized (coughs) the birthright and the eternality of what was being offered to him was of much greater significance than what Esau wanted, a bowl of porridge. And when we love the world, we're loving a bowl of porridge instead of what is eternal. And finally, there is no need to be deceived. These teachers that went out from us, they were never of us. They are liars, therefore they cannot be of God. They diminish Jesus. They offer less than what we already have in Christ. They are not from God. They are are anti-Christ. Little children, fathers, young men, we are these things. And we can thank God humbly for all that he is to us. And thanking that the gift that he has given us, eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, will always be greater than anything the world tries to entice us with. I'll close us in prayer. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for the ministry of Jesus who advocates on our behalf. For the ministry of the Holy Spirit who teaches us, always leads us, into what is true and right and good leading us to righteousness who convicts us that we might face the truth and walk in the light and have fellowship with you and with one another. Thank you for all that you are to us and have done for us and I pray God that we would not be deceived to love the world or deceived to diminish Jesus in the slightest way. But that Christ would truly be exalted as the all-sufficient one in each of us with every trial that we go through. In Christ's name, amen.